This is the Arbitration Station, the world's best weekly podcast on international arbitration recorded in Sweden. Uh, <laughs> so qualified. <laughs> yeah, if we change it and we don't record weekly anymore, it might be the, the best bi-weekly arbitration podcast from Sweden. Right. Hi, Brian Kodik. Hi, Joel Dahlquist Kovori. <laughs> Sorry, it's my fault for having a stupid Viking last name, too, as a matter of fact. I, at least I'm saying it with a pronunciation. I mean, for those of you who don't speak Swedish, it's Kohlberg. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, sitting up in the conference rooms once more. Uh, got our whole podcast set up, ready to go. Nice. I'm still in the cabin in the southeast of Sweden in, in isolation. I'm starting to feel like Tom Hanks in Castaway. Are you talking to a volleyball? Yeah, you're my Wilson. <laughs> Great. I'm actually not even here, Joel. This is all in your yeah, head. that would be a fun twist if the podcast turned out to be just me talking to myself all the time. And there it's was the Truman no Show. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was good for me when we recorded the last episode that I, I, get to, I got to go to Stockholm and have some meetings and talk to you and see some people because... Now I'm back in, in semi-isolation, working on my dissertation. You need it. You need to focus right now, Joel. Yes, so I, I record a podcast. <laughs> right. Perfect focus. So before we uh, introduce the topics of today, which, by the way, include an interview that I'm really looking forward to listening to because I wasn't part of it, I just want to tell you something that a, a very uh, smart listener of ours highlighted to me and I haven't told you about just because it's so funny. Our name, the arbitration station, has been used before. We are not the first oh. ones to come up with this. What? Yeah, and it is so funny in which context it was used. So okay. we started this in like what, June? We started talking about July something? This right. summer anyway, 2017. In April 2017, apparently IKEA sent out an April's Fool email to their like loyal customers in which they uh, try to trick people probably not very successfully that they have now introduced big land which is in addition to the small land where kids can hang out at ikea the the adults can hang out at big land so they have a bar and massage and they also have an arbitration station then you know, joking on you know there's always the joke that at at ikea is where people break up because you hate your partner when you go to Ikea. So they are providing an arbitration station for partners or couples at Ikea who are about to break up. So you can have an instant <laughs> arbitration by the arbitration station. That's hilarious. <laughs> so but it was all a joke. This wasn't a real thing. Yeah, exactly. Which is ironic because we're also almost a joke and we're also from Sweden. That is so funny. It reminds me of the Christian counseling thing that we talked about in our previous episode. <laughs> I hope they didn't didn't trademark the phrase arbitration station because then we're screwed. That is so hilarious. Have you you've obviously it's part of your citizenship to put an IKEA furniture together. Yes, I mean, yeah, I barely own furniture that's non IKEA. I had to do it once, but in the US you can just go on Craigslist and hire someone for that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd be thrown in jail if you try to pay someone in Sweden to do that. Kind of right, 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 right. Oh, the differences. That's yeah. hilarious, though. Well, I hope they didn't copyright it. No, I don't think they did, and it's just they, it hasn't shown up in my in my googling of the arbitration station. We should have done some research before we got the name, but anyway, now we're stuck with it. So sorry, IKEA, it's ours now. That's too funny. So moving on to the substance, what are we talking about today? Yes. Yeah, so first, we are going to start off with that interview you mentioned with a senior associate uh, from Amsterdam and Partners LLP, which is based out of London, but they have offices um, all over the world. And his name is Simon Wolf, uh, lived in Sweden for a bit, but now lives in London working for this firm. And this firm is something different, a really unique take on arbitration issues or being a counsel for uh, a counsel in arbitration. And what they're specialized in is they're the leading international crisis law and corporate foreign policy firm providing crisis law and strategic geopolitical counsel to corporations and decision makers operating in volatile and crisis prone environments so and i think that's the key is in these i mean they've worked with international white collar defense and international arbitration in disputes in guatemala nigeria russia thailand turkey venezuela and zambia you can do this as an arbitration lawyer? Yes, it doesn't have to be the Catholicism of arbitration that we all think of. Oh, and that's kind of why we, wanted, why we wanted to interview him, is to kind of show people the, the breadth of um, the arbitration sphere. So that's pretty cool. And then the second topic we will be talking about, or you will be fielding, will be third-party um, in, intervention or third-party submissions in arbitration. And or I guess you should say non-party uh, as well. Um, and then finally, for our happy fun topic, we will be talking about the Jerusalem Arbitration Center, uh, which is something that I first learned about when we were both working at the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. But I've kind of kept my finger semi on the pulse of what's happening there. So we're going to get into how it's structured, how it works, what its aspirations are and whether it's been successful or not. Great. Let's go. Here we go. So, so we we um we almost picked up a new client uh, in Las Vegas, and so we were going to be there on the weekend. Oh God! We were going to be there on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday at the Mandalay. Oh my God! Oh, it was the Mandalay. I stayed at that hotel. We were going to be at the Mandalay. Yeah, it's crazy what's happening. It's the biggest mass shooting in U.S. history um, since like 1869, I think. Um, but let's uh, continue. So we are sitting here with Simon Wolf, someone who I just introduced in the beginning of the podcast, who is the second interview that we've had on the podcast, actually. How does that feel? It feels like I'm second best. <laughs> well, I mean, the reason why you're here is because there's a lot of our listeners that are students that have either just graduated or they're looking to get into the arbitration field or people that have just started in the arbitration field. And they feel that arbitration is this one-dimensional sphere that they think that you have to be in a courtroom and or a hotel conference room representing a client in order to really be uh, a part of the arbitration community. And though you do do that, you have a lot of other facets that you engage in. And I would still say that it is very much enmeshed in the arbitration sphere. Um, so let's start from the very beginning. How did you get to London? Um, so I, I had a bit of a, a, a different trajectory. I started out in a commercial firm in Australia practicing both dispute resolution and also 
banking. For a couple of years, I decided I, want to fo- I wanted to focus on arbitration. So I went to the program at Stockholm University and undertook that LLM. Did you do any arbitration in your old job? No. The, the arbitration market in Australia is not very mature. So there's, there's not many firms who actually do practice pure, or certainly at the time, there weren't many firms practicing pure arbitration work. So I decided to come to Stockholm and I took up a job with, a, with an NGO and doing essentially lobbying work on behalf of freedom of speech. It was my client. <laughs> I let it down. Uh, and then I, I decided I wanted to go back into private practice, practicing dispute resolution combined with the, the sort of public policy and, and lobbying work. And, and, and now I found my way to, to Amsterdam Partners who does who has sort of a broad practice in, in dispute resolution investigations, both on the criminal and the civil side, but, but with, a, with, a, with a very heavy focus in, in arbitration. There's not many cases we have that don't have some kind of um, arbitration element in certain, and they're certainly all international. Now, let's unpack this for a second. Are these all investment arbitrations that you work with, since there's a policy government implications, or is it a blend between commercial and investment arbitrations? I can give you an example. So we, and I won't go into the details, obviously, but act on behalf of a sub-Saharan mining client who, who on their behalf, we've brought both investment arbitration proceedings, commercial arbitration proceedings, uh, and also, you know, your regular court proceedings in two different countries. So, I mean, that's that that's sort of the the, the big the big lie about uh, international arbitration when people come into to these firms is international arbitration is sort of usually one piece of a larger strategy around how to resolve the dispute. Right. So when you have all these parallel cases going on, are you involved in all of these cases? Yes. Okay. Then are you managing the interaction between these cases? Of course, when we're working with domestic legal proceedings in sub-Saharan African countries, of which I have had no prior experience, <laughs> as, as much as my wife would point out that I, I would assume I was the best lawyer in that country, um, God bless her. Uh, she, uh, rather, we we always we always hire local counsel, which is which is prudent in any case, anyway. Of course, right. Now, when you have these parallel litigations in domestic courts and arbitrations dealing with the same subject matter, are you weaving in the issues and judgments of the domestic cases into your international arbitrations? I, I always sort of think, think of it like this. I mean, any dispute you, you have, whether it's purely legal or in, in our case, we do a lot of political disputes as well, um, is that you, you're just trying to explain your, the narrative of your client in the best way you possibly can. So in some in some cases, bringing a case before an investment tribunal is the best way to do that. And sometimes it's bringing it before a domestic court, and it really depends on a case by case basis. But you, you just have to be cognizant of of making that narrative as clear as possible and known to as many relevant people as possible. Seems like your firm is doing a better job advising your client in a more holistic way, not just immediately will take you to arbitration when they meet this type of question, but you kind of consider other options as well. We, we, we have a lot of experience working with with some of the largest firms uh, on earth, and I kind of agree with that. I mean, a lot of those large firms take conservative decisions or rather provide advice which is very one-dimensional when often there are you know, you know, multiple ways to skin a cat, as they say. I mean, one of our big pushes with our clients 
and prospective clients is we're trying to encourage them to think about um, this co- a concept of what we call corporate foreign policy. A lot of companies now have sustainability programs, um, environmental programs, CSR compliance, programs, yeah. compliance, sort of the big, you know, sexy issue. Right. But if you, if you think about it, if, you, if, if you're a, a, a minerals company or if you're a bank um, or if you're, you know, a regular, say, a pharmaceutical company, and you've got an interaction with a politic with a politically um, tumultuous country, an understanding and an appreciation of how that country reacts with respect to other countries could affect your distribution channels. Um, it could affect your FX exposure. It could affect your ability to borrow money to execute transactions. So we really try and push an understanding of that for our clients because we think it's absolutely critical. I mean, I think what you're getting at is that working with the state is an entirely different animal. There's different policy implications that a decision of the state or an arbitration outcome affecting a state can have globally, so that's something that you need to consider. Now, you started as a senior associate in this firm. Is that some of the, are there some of the skills that you brought from your experience before to this job that kind of made you a good fit for this job? I mean, I'd spent a lot of time before I took this job working with government. So I, I sort of had an appreciation for how both elected officials and non-elected bureaucrats work and think. I mean, that's a massive generalization. It's, of course, different from right. country to country. But it's, I remember when I did my, my articles, when I first started out, the big push was like, you know, you know you're a 21-year-old you know, graduate. You've got to understand what commercial means. I mean, right. it's the same with working for a government. You just have to understand what your client's motivations are. And as soon as you sort of get a handle on that and you think through that prism, suddenly getting the narrative out is so much easier. Suddenly helping them arrive at what you think is the most practical and beneficial position for them is. Do you work with crisis management things as well? Um, we do, we do. Um, part and parcel of the disputes, like when they're ongoing and often, um, I mean, crisis is one of those things people always call you when it's too late. Again, when you've got long-standing relationships with clients, you can sort of build that in before you know things become too right. bad. Right, right. I just wanna know, is it, are you getting PR companies to do this type of work or are you doing this all in-house? I just want to know, is this a one-stop shop? Are you bringing in different elements to this project? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, of, of course, we, we hire um, external PR firms all the time on, on our cases. But by the nature of what we do, and you know, because that's an element in every single case that we, we run, we, of course, get an appreciation. So then we become sort of more sophisticated users of these third-party vendors. Um, but we, yeah, for sure, we always use PR companies. How many people are you in this firm? Um, we have uh, around 25 to 30 lawyers. And they're around the world? Around the world. We have offices in, in DC and in, in London. Um, but we have capabilities and have done work on every continent on Earth except Antarctica. That, that's just because <laughs> my, my, my boss doesn't like the cold. <laughs> Is this a uh, arbitration firm model that you think we will see more of in the future or do you think this is a bit of a one-off to kind of fill a need um, in this tumultuous period in our history? Well, I mean, I think there's a general move in, 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 in dispute resolution to go to smaller firms anyway. So if you put that aside to one second, I think people will start appreciating as they did 10, 15 years ago with the real compliance push that, that, that having an understanding of foreign policy and and, and human rights, which is, of course, a big part of our practice too. When they realise the importance of that, then, then of course, our practice will, will continue to grow and, and, and others will follow suit, I think. 
so we plan so we plan on interviewing someone in one of the later episodes about ethics and arbitration. Do you feel that you've met certain type of situations or certain type of cases where you've had to face an ethical or moral dilemma in your representation of a client? I mean, if we always consider our ethical obligations in, in whatever decision we take. I mean, I guess the question you're asking is, do you, do you have, um, do you take on a moral opposition to people that perhaps you otherwise wouldn't have politically agreed with and, and act for them? I mean, I, I, I certainly don't prescribe by that. I mean, I think that a client is your client and you, you, irrespective of, of, of who they are, you should do your very best to act on their behalf. Saying that, our firm has a long track record of acting for usually the oppressed uh, and the underdog. In 2013, we won the Global Pro Bono Award for acting, a, acting for a whistleblower against the United Nations. So, oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a strong focus for yeah. us to to think about the kinds of people we act for but often and, and you know i found this we, we we act for the republic of turkey and that for me has been an absolutely fascinating case because you see a daily barrage uh, in the press against um, the both the president and the government of turkey and having spent so much time on the case and developed an, a, an in-depth knowledge in fact we've just released a book which talks about oh, wow. um, the gulen movement um, in turkey and and in the u.s what's it called uh, it's called empire of deceit written by written by our firm uh, on behalf of the Republic of Turkey. You can find out more about it on empireofdeceit.com. Uh, and it, it is a pure investigation. So there's a good example of departing from the pure arbitration stuff. So it's called Empire of Deceit and it's about Turkey? It's about the Gulen movement. Fatullah okay. Gulen is, a, is a, an Islamic cleric from Turkey who is now living in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, who, who, who we say in his network masterminds the greatest charter school fraud ever on the history of uh, American public education under the noses of regulators at a local, state and federal level. It is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, we've personally documented, by, for example, $273 million worth of fraud. Wow. There are 200 schools across the US uh, every year. Like the, the, the revenues are approaching a, a billion dollars. It's, it's, it's out of control. So to go back to my point, it's, it's, it's interesting when you don't take preconceived notions into a case um, what you can discover and I think you find yourself on the, in a position of revealing something as we have I think in our case something truly incredible certainly for me it was shocking when I first started studying and I think I find when I talk to people they also find it as, as shocking I, I mean I, I go back to, to, to the point I was making at the start was we were trying to find the best way to express the narrative of our, of our client and to, 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 to make the investigation uncover the wrongdoing and then communicate it so that we hope law enforcement authorities in the states at all levels will do something about it putting this book and for the first time i mean often with these political issues it's it's all it's two sides firing sort of political epithets at each other with competing ideologies and, and all the rest of it what this book does is it, it sets out facts only facts and that was the most useful tool in this case because so much mudslinging happens when you talk about turkey um, that we had to cut through all of that and, and just talk about the, the actual wrongdoing that took place. Interesting. Maybe we can develop this a little bit more. When you say fraud for charter schools, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, it's, uh, uh, again, go to the website, it explains in great detail, but what essentially happens is, is the movement sets up a charter school and finds, uh, charter schools, by the way, are, are schools that are not as well regulated in the yeah. US as, say, for example, a public school. They all receive government money. And then what the, the charter school management organization does is find any way possible to skim money off the top. 
So they'll say, they'll have a teacher, Turkish teacher that they bring over from Turkey on an H-1B visa, um, completely unqualified for the position. They'll stay for two years and they'll open a construction company. And then the charter school will say to the government, well, you know, with part of our charter, we need to build a new gym. So they build a new gym and of course, who do they hire? And instead of paying the million dollars to construct it, they charge three million. And so if you combine that with the forced tithing of the teachers, so teachers who come from Turkey on these visas to teach in the schools have to compulsorily give um, between 20 and 40% of their salary in cash back to the movement. I've spoken personally to whistleblowers, and again, it appears in the book, um, where he collected uh, the cash from the teachers at the end of every month, got on a plane, flew to Los Angeles, paid the cash, flew back once a month, every month. And this is happening right under the noses of, of, of law enforcement. It's just mind-blowing. I have a friend who works in the charter school system, and it's such a weird bag because it's not the typical public school system where they section you off based off districts and you're forced to go to that public school. It's like a public school within the area, but it's basically run by a corporation. But do they get, I don't know, do they get more money uh, than normal public schools? It would, obviously it depends on the state. But no, but the charter school movement is an extremely powerful, well-funded lobby. And there, there are thousands of charter schools across the US. The concept is fine. It's sort of a less regulated education entity, which, you know, America being free, freedom, allows you to have a more flexible education for your kids. But the flip side, of course, is that with less regulation, it's more... More exposed, right? Yeah. Have you written a book before? This is the first we've... Our firm's written a lot of white papers, which is a sort of fancy way of saying smaller book. But this is... A, it's a big book. It's a coffee table book. It's 650 page. A4. It's a, it's a tome. I'll, I'll have my colleague Jake send you a copy. I'll have him sign. <laughs> I mean, it seems like your firm is really on the cutting edge of what's happening in an arbitration. Do you know what you see as trends or what, how you see arbitration taking shape in today's world? I mean, I think the, the interesting thing will be how... So, I mean, this is a pretty big discussion. The arbitration community has been for a long time. Is that arbitration now is it's no longer the cool, cool new kid on the block, which is less expensive and more flexible and all the rest of it than, than going to a court. And I think we're kind of even past that period now when, you know, going to an, an arbitral tribunal is so mainstream. So I think the development is going to be, well, how does this option to go to arbitration fit into the broader you know, scope of resolving this dispute? And I know in, in certain cases we, we've said, well, actually, arbitration isn't the best option for us and going to the local court is. And, you know, we've gone to courts in places that a lot of those big firms wouldn't recommend. I mean, we've fought and won cases in Zambia in Kenya, in Nigeria, um, and oftentimes you'll find it's much more effective to do that. So I think that people will take a more mature um, approach to resolving disputes and and a more nuanced approach. I mean, there can't be that many firms doing what you're doing, right? Do you know of any other firms? Not that I'm aware of. Don't tell my boss that because he likes to remind me how lucky I am. <laughs> but if there are new firms coming in to the business and they're trying to figure out how to model their firm uh, to do the type of work that you're doing? Are there type of skills or resources that you need for a new firm to be able to do what you guys are doing? Yeah, but it's, all, it's also just having the balls to do it. I'll give you a good example. So we, we, we acted on behalf of the former Prime Minister of Thailand, Taksin Shinawatra. And when when Taksin was, was looking to hire someone, he, I assume, called a number of people. He's the former Prime Minister. He's probably got a, quite a large contact book. But he called Bob, and who's, who's my Bob? Um, my Bob. That is a terrible Freudian slip. He's, yeah, I'm going to pay for that. But they, they, they called him and he said, I'll be, with, I'll be there within 12 hours. And he got on a plane 
and literally got in the back of a van with two mattresses on either side of him to protect from because everyone was being shot at coming in and out of the red shirt compound and he just did it because you know he liked the guy believed in the movement and wanted to help him right yeah i see that one more question uh before we get on to your personal life uh you guys also work with investigations. Do people hire you specifically for investigations, or how does that work? In the context of helping someone with a dispute. Okay. But, but in, in terms of doing the pure investigatory work, we don't do that. We, we hire third parties to assist us, as the case might be. Um, but we would describe our work against the Gulen movement in the US as an investigation, but it's a legal investigation rather than a pure an investigation, perhaps is what you're asking me about. Yeah. Did you, now you spent some time in Africa actually, right? Where in Africa were you? Uh, I was living in Arusha, Tanzania, interning for the um, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And how long were you there? Uh, four months. And what was included in this internship? Well, I was acting for the Office of the Prosecutor. We were prosecuting the big government, um, well, they were the government ministers who, who were behind um, the orchestration of the genocide in Rwanda and, 1994. You're quite the freedom fighter. <laughs> so it seems. <laughs> so it seems. But listen, if you're a large bank out there, I'm happy to talk to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> you have, Were you able to draw from your experiences when from your time in Africa or draw from the kind of skill sets that you developed there? I, I've always been a big believer in, in, in the importance of, to some degree, being a generalist as a lawyer because they, these guys who go in and, you know, they're debt capital markets lawyers and they've done that since they were 21 and until they leave the partnership at 60. I mean, what happens if there's a slightly different scenario or, or you've got to work in a country that you've never been to or experienced before or don't speak the language? I think being, what, being a generalist and having different experience gives you is the ability to adapt easily. And I think that's kind of what we're paid to do as lawyers because nobody knows the civil code off, off by heart. Nobody, yeah. nobody knows every arbitration case on jurisdiction that's ever existed, but you know where to find it. And that's the skill. And so the skill, I think, certainly in what we do and I think what most lawyers um, do is, 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 is being adaptive and, 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 and willing to and, and finding the ability to learn a new skill. Well, thank you so much for this interview and for speaking with us all the way in London. And can you tell everyone again where they can find your book? So you can find the book on empireofdeceit.com. All right. If you know, it's a free download. That's right. Um, you can also buy the book on Amazon. Um, or, or we've got a few copies in, in DC, which I can get Jake down to UPS and send you one. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, and thanks for this segment, and let's move on. So, here it goes. Amicus Curiae. Oh, good, good, good. It was, it's good? Are, are there other pronunciations that could be said? <laughs> you... Son of a something. <laughs> Brian sent me a YouTube clip before this in order to give me instructions on how to pronounce Amicus Curiae. And very helpfully, the clip gave like 19 different ways of saying Amicus. Right. It's <laughs> uh, like the, the Google Translate lady. That's yeah, exactly. Amicus. But what about the plural, Joel? Yeah. Oh, I was hoping we wouldn't get to this and I could talk my way around it. I, I always say uh, Amici. Okay. I say Amici. Yeah, that sounds so much more Roman, Italian. Latin. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's say so yeah. No, in fact, let's just stay with third-party submissions. All right, sounds good. <laughs> Talk away around it. In any way, it, it means 
friend of the court, Amicus Curiae. And as Brian's excellent Italian pronunciation would indicate, it has its origins in Roman law, but in modern form, it's mostly used in common law jurisdictions. And the mechanism is a way for parties that are not technically party to the dispute to get a voice within the frames of the dispute. So it's done in courts a lot. Do you have any experience, Brian, being sort of American? Of amicus curiae? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have a lot, especially in the Supreme Court. Uh, If you talk something about Roe v. Wade, you have the amicus curiae of Planned Parenthood. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you basically study that that type of submissions in in law school as any other legal source. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, not any other, but a legal source among others. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting because I think it's alien to many, especially civil law people. It is, it is not allowed in most civil law jurisdictions in court, which is why it is so interesting to talk about this in the international arbitration context. It is not super common in commercial arbitration to have that type of submissions for obvious reasons due to confidentiality and privacy. Right. I haven't actually heard of one example. I couldn't find one with two minutes of Google in a pure commercial arbitration context of an amicus submission. Have you... Do you know any? It purely commercial? No. Yeah, no. My inputs from from listeners are welcome, but I yeah. don't think there is one, maybe. Because, once again, most commercial arbitrations are private and confidential, so there's no dispute to, to know about in the first place. Instead, the investment arbitration context, there's, there's where we have the, uh, the major battleground. Um, and the legal background for this is is really very interesting and comes once again the first few times this was used was in the Iran United States Claims Tribunal it keeps coming back as a origin story for many investment arbitration things and there the tribunal applied the UNSA trial rules they also had a special note adopted that expressly allowed the tribunal to uh, order or allow applications from non-party submissions, including the state that was not party to the dispute, but also a third party that had no connection to to the dispute. And after the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal, several tribunals applying the 1976 UNCTRAL rules, they found that within the frames of sort of a general power that the tribunal has, it's Article 15 in the 1976 version of the Unsetron Rules to uh, conduct the arbitration in a manner as they consider appropriate or whatever the phrasing is. That power is a general power given to arbitral tribunals also encompasses the opportunity or the mandate to allow third party submissions. Right. That's like a general, and I think that's a little bit disputed whether or not that is an accurate reading of a general power of the tribunals. Exactly. And it, it really becomes a live issue if one of the parties object to it, uh, because then you might have a problem when a tribunal overrules an objecting party to open up, quote unquote, the proceedings to a third party. Right. But, and it's it's funny when it comes up in that context, because obviously one side will object if they think it's against their case. Um, but then you have the other side where this third party is essentially 
you know, bringing up relevant issues that would be helpful for them. And if they're going to be a, a member of the court, the other party can't really opine on the, you know, legal relevance of these arguments and just kind of has to say, you know, we have no objection. Yeah. Or sometimes they have to opine on, on the legal arguments being brought and that would risk delay the proceedings completely because you would have you know, an extra round of submissions just to react to what the amicus is saying. Right. But in any event, after these early onset trial cases, we've now seen in, in modern days a development in the investment arbitration world where many rules include express provisions allowing for this. Uh, the exit rules, of course, are a good example. Both the newer versions of the SEC and the SIAC, Singapore rules, do this, and the UNCITRAL transparency rules from 2014, which is really a, a monster in and of itself that we should probably address separately because it's such an interesting reform effort. Um, basically, what, what the UNCITRAL transparency rules do is that they make a certain set of norms applicable to any UNCIT trial, any future UNCIT trial transparency, I'm sorry, any future UNCIT trial arbitration uh, starting in 2014 and moving on under certain conditions. So they open up any UNCIT trial treaty-based case and they pr express power for the tribunal to order an amicus submission or allow an amicus submission. That's one of the things included in the transparency rules. And it's they, those rules and the way they were drafted and what they included and what they're doing to transparency is super interesting. We should actually talk to an uncitral person about this. But parties can also, of course, expressly allow for it, even in commercial cases, although once again, I think that's unheard of that commercial parties would <laughs> put that in an arbitration clause and say right. uh, the tribunal may allow for non-party submissions. But some investment treaties do this. NAFTA, for example, and the US model bit, some, a few US treaties based on the bit also expressly in the arbitration agreement say so that the tribunal has this power. So often they can do this, the tribunals, but should they? And that is the big question that I would like to talk to you about. Yeah. Because who are the Amici, right? <laughs> Typically, an, an applicant has to demonstrate uh, one, uh, an added value to the proceedings, and two, an interest in the outcome of the proceedings. So, given the consequences for both cost and, and timing delay, they have to bring something new to the table. And the best example that I use in teaching to exemplify what is the typical amicus that that probably in most cases would be approved is your arch enemy, the European Commission. Right. Because they are, of course, the best when it comes to EU law, because they are, by, by definition, their job is to guard EU law. And thereby, they, because they are the executive guardians of the EU legal order, they also have an interest in how tribunals rule on EU law. So if an arbitration concerns EU law, it would be pretty hard to say that the Commission's perspective does not assist the tribunal. Right. Well, I think right there, you kind of have to focus on the scope of what they're allowed to talk about. Um, so it's not just, okay, EU law is somewhere in this case. Now the EC can come in and talk about whatever they want. Um, and I think that scope argument is something interesting because often the EC will take a very, you know, broad 
exercise a broad discretion in the type of issues that they can bring up, but it's up to the tribunal to kind of limit what they can talk about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially in the treaty context, when you have a lot of, especially the hot topic right now with, you know, intra-EU BITs and the EC's opinion on that is you have a jurisdictional objections. So then you kind of say, okay, sure, they can opine on the jurisdictional objections that have already been raised by the party. But what about, and this I, you know, throw over to you, you know, what about jurisdictional objections that have not been raised by the opposing party, but that have been raised by the EC on its own? Yeah, this is where we start to move into interesting territory. As you say, the way this is dealt with in the frames of the tribunal is, of course, that uh, or within the frames of the arbitration, sorry, is that the tribunal drafts a procedural order where all this is set down. And I think initially, with the first few times this happened, those procedural orders were not that specific in setting out what can the amicus say and not say. Now, with with the benefit of hindsight, I think the procedural orders are more detailed. So you as a party, it's really on you to tell the tribunal what are, what is the framework within which we're fine with having a third party intervening here. Right. And I mean, so you have the third party saying, hey, raise a flag. We want to come in. Then the parties discuss their ability to come in. And then the procedure order comes down on at, and that's what you're saying. At that point, the procedure order comes down and says, okay, this is who can come in and how. Yeah. And then there's the, the third party submission. And then there's another response round on what was actually submitted. Yeah, exactly. And then ideally, in mo the most cases, the procedural order setting down the conditions basically say that we want answers to the following questions and then details on it, it shouldn't be right. longer longer than 15 pages and it, it shouldn't add new legal arguments etc cetera, etc cetera, so that it does not unnecessarily delay the proceedings i don't know if you've looked into this but have you looked into um the ability of the third party to have access to the documents from the case this is even more interesting, yeah. <laughs> I think because that that ties a little bit into what I wanted to talk about, which is to to what extent this is uh, the new wave of transparency. Because I think th the ability to open up and allow for written submissions by third parties is very often put center stage when arbitration professionals are defending the system and saying you know, to, to critics that this is actually a more transparent form of dispute than you would like to think. Look here, we even allowed, you know, two NGOs to write to the tribunal. That would never happen in Swedish court, for example, right. to look at arbitration. But my view, and I suspect we might be differing on this, is that that is really not enough in the sense that it's not a big transparency thing. If all you get to do is write a brief and then email it, that doesn't really address all the 400 other things that you may think is a problem in the sense that investment treaty arbitration for various reasons is different from commercial arbitration. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, but if you want to advocate for an embraced transparency, just allowing for a written submission isn't a very big step because it right. doesn't really, especially if you don't have access to the underlying submissions, then it's you're like writing an op-ed. Yeah. 
It's like two ships passing in the night. They're just, you know, winging it. Based off these articles that we've read about the case, this is what we think we can opine on. Yeah, exactly. And then it's not bound to be very helpful to right. the tribunal. I never so thought I, I mean, like that. I think this is another thing that you should put in a procedural order, probably, that you should get the party's consent to attach parts of the record, at least to the extent that it would make it easier for the Amki. Sorry, Amici. <laughs> so, so another typical, I mean, the the European Commission is the, by far the free, most frequent amicus, but uh, many NGOs are also typically allowed. Uh, a very good example, actually, that I read just the other week is in Lone Pine versus Canada, a big NAFTA case, because there are two entities wanted to uh, submit. And one was allowed and one was not. The one that was not allowed, very interestingly, and I mean, this guy should receive a big round of applause, was a Bangladeshi lawyer who seemingly had no connection to this or the parties or anything else, who basically, from what I can tell from the tribunal's procedural order, he just claimed to be an expert on expropriation legally. And saying like I'm good at this, I can I can I add expertise that. to the tribunal. I'm gonna start applying to like most commercial arbitrations. <laughs> so the tribunal said, Mr. Islam has not demonstrated that he is a person from a party to NAFTA, let alone that he has any significant presence in North America. In addition, it is very doubtful that he has any relevant interest in this arbitration or that he could materially assist the tribunal. Right. So he was not allowed. To, to submit anything. But by contrast, the Quebec Environmental Law Center was found to have both an interest in the arbitration because it concerns an exploration permit in Quebec, as well as expertise in the region, like on the on the ground expertise. So that's another typical um, amicus that is allowed. And this, I, I don't know if you have any experience of this, but something that comes up, we have we teach a seminar on transparency in the, in the master's program. And, Something that comes up usually when the, the smarter students, and I may be giving away something for future students here, but so be it. They uh, identify that this role sort of overlaps sometimes with the role of an expert. So not a party appointed expert, but I mean, tribunals can always suggest or sometimes even order an expert to, to be consulted on a particular issue. Right. And that is really similar to having a non-party submission, really. I mean, if, if you allow the Quebec Environmental Law Center to submit a report or their view uh, because they have regional expertise and a big interest in the arbitration, it's not that different from having the tribunal order them to do so as, as an expert because they are the ones who know the topic or the field or the region the best, right? Right. I guess the difference is who's paying for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, an invited party is a little bit better than, or a little bit more expensive than someone who just inserts themselves. Uh, and then the tribunal will have to exercise this power and kind of basically say that the parties haven't done enough on this topic. We need an expert to come in on this. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's maybe a little bit of uh, a hint towards the parties as well that you haven't done your job properly. Yeah. Uh, I, and if they if the parties haven't done their job, then the tribunal could, before they consult an expert, for example, in the EU law context, be like, ask the parties questions. Please answer the questions. What is the relevance of EU law on the applicability of this treaty, yeah. um, for example? 
and usually the lawyers would be able to provide um, sufficient and relevant information. This, this raises so many interesting sub-issues that we don't really have time, time to go into here. Yeah. For example, if, if they should, the amici should be available for cross at the hearing, or if they should contribute to paying the cost for the arbitration, if they delay it, which they do by definition, because if they would not submit, then the parties could move on faster to the issues at heart. But the bigger question for us really is from me to you, Brian, how good is this really for transparency? You sort of dodged it the last time around. I, I brought it up. <laughs> I know when you I, I've never connected this to transparency, but I think you're right at, at some theoretical level. It, it is uh, better for transparency of what's happening in these um, arbitrations. I think a lot of arbitrators will, or arbitration counsel will be a bit hesitant to just release all the documents because there's a lot of like nitty gritty and, you know, internal procedural fights that just don't need to be released to the parties or to non-parties. Um, but yeah. for example, when, you know, in an effort to be transparent, if, you know, you're want the case to be transparent, then allowing the submissions, for example, to be given to this non-party uh, could could help streamline the arbitration and show a vote of confidence in favor of transparency. That's good. And it's, I think it's interesting that you, you didn't connect this to transparency, because that is yeah. maybe it's just because I have my glasses on both my actual glasses and also my <laughs> academic metaphorical glasses when I go to conferences, because this is usually discussed within uh, a context where where it's it's deemed to be a transparency measure that's the way i think both the sec and the SEAC uh, motivated uh, their inclusion of this in their new version of the rules mm -hmm. but but not for commercial cases but for treaty cases at those two commercial institutions they made a, a pretty big deal out of the fact that this is for us it's a, it's a big step in the transparency direction because we are commercial arbitration institutions and now we are opening up for this possibility, which was unheard of 10, right. 15 years ago. So they sort of boosted this as a, you know, the big way forward. And I, I, although I really tend to think that it is a very good instrument, if it's exercised properly with, with uh, good parties and tribunals setting the frames, I'm not sure how important it actually is from a transparency perspective. Other measures would probably be better, for example, making hearings and pleading submissions accessible to wider public. Yeah, that would be amazing, which is done example, for example, in the NAFTA context, uh, often, although I don't think I've been to a few of those uh, publicly available hearings, you, you're not allowed normally in the hearing room, you have to be at the at the place of the hearing but in a different room, and then they sort of CCTV send it internally. Yep on TV screens. So from a transparency perspective, that's also not super transparent in the sense that you have to go to the city where the arbitration is and then sit and watch a TV in a room. Oh, it's it's open, though. And I think that's what they're getting at with the transparent that it's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, if the Amici are getting these documents, uh, not the entire public is not getting these documents either. So it's not necessarily transparent in that sense that the public will have access to it. That's true. But I, I to argue against myself, then I, I was maybe one of 12 people who actually watched the Vattenfall hearing that you were a part of that was webcast. Right. An Exid case. It was heard in DC, right, at the Exid headquarters. Right. 
but I didn't have to go there because I was somewhere else and I could watch it on my computer. It was broadcast with like three or four hours delay so that confidential information could be redacted. But otherwise, it felt like it was live and I could sit uh, in a different time zone and watch it live. And that is, to a much larger extent, real transparency, I think. Yeah. But but then 12 people were watching, maybe even more. But I got the sense that from all these critics talking about investment arbitration and how it should be opened up, once you open it up, few people are actually interested because it tends to be just cross examinations of like nuclear scientists for 12 hours in a row. Yeah, it's a tough thing to follow if you have no interest <laughs> in it. But I think, I mean, at the end of the day, if we're talking about the practicality of it, which I don't have my glasses on, I got LASIK, you should try it. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I think we're really building this. You are the the metropolitan yeah. Californian liberal guy and I'm the boring Swedish guy who lives in the forest. I mean, it's kind of true. <laughs> uh, but I mean, in practice, in, in practice, when these things, when a tribunal is faced with this, because tribunals are very risk averse, I mean, because they want to be reappointed and they want to have a clean arbitration and not have a risk of, you know, setting aside. When this comes up, unless it's a flagrant thing, like in a practitioner who has no interest in the case, it's the harm that it causes to the parties to let it in is pretty slight. I mean, it's a, another round of submissions, a little extra cost in, you know, comparatively to the rest of the case. So your end, I mean, the granted, they don't have like expressed powers and many arbitral rules, but they, they're going to let it in. I, I just right. don't see. Um, and maybe that's why the transparency issue hasn't really come to light as strong because, um, people if you're going to try to you know intervene in that arbitration you're likely to get in maybe but i think it this it's different depending on which from which angle you're approaching this if we're talking specifically about investment arbitration which we are it really has to do with the the soul of investment arbitration what is it is it commercial arbitration or is it something else because a lot of people argue that investment arbitration you know, it, it, it concerns issues that go beyond the disputing parties, as opposed to commercial arbitration, which by definition is only a thing for the disputing parties, right. and they own the proceedings. So in, in, in the law, in the procedural law, the, the applicable legislation and, and arbitration rules and what have you, investment arbitration is commercial arbitration, because the same rules are applied with the exception of the exit convention, but that is in so many ways similar to arbitration rules. So the procedure sort of looks the same, but the substance in what you're adjudicating, that's something that usually, I mean, obviously has public implications and any potential award will be paid for with, with tax money and so on. So there you could make a case that it should be different than commercial arbitrations and sort of the underlying uh, rationale is different. And I think people come at this from either of those two different perspectives and that informs the way you make decisions, even as an arbitrator, I think. You think well, Joel. Yeah, that's what I'm getting paid for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we take a five second break and be right back? Let's do it. And now it is happy fun time. Relax, take your shoes off, and sit on down. Uh, we will be talking about, as we mentioned in the intro, the Jerusalem uh, Arbitration Center, or JAC, 
uh, you can call it, which is a joint venture of ICC Palestine and ICC Israel in association with the Paris-based ICC um, and its International Court of Arbitration. And so basically, business leaders in Palestine and Israel realize that there's a need for a neutral mechanism to resolve commercial disputes between businesses and individuals from both countries. Just full disclosure, my mom was born in Israel. I kind of know the havoc firsthand uh, between these two cultures. It's a very tumultuous relationship. Without getting political on this podcast, it's, it's hard to solve, you know, with, with any sort of political solution, which is why it hasn't really gone anywhere thus far and so basically what people saw is that israel i mean palestine and israel are some of like are each other's biggest trading partners and you only do trade and this is just a fundamental principle of economics if you think that your business is going to be carried out and you only do trade with people you trust and with that is being enforcing your rights if anything goes wrong um and so jack tried to basically fill this hole um to uh, sorry j a c j a c yeah exactly. i heard you saying jack j a c k oh, as no. a person oh yeah i but think if you go no. on their website it's like or if you go on the rules it's like it's jack as the as the name um and they're also going to do and they're also in charge of doing outreach activities and raising awareness to promote arbitration as well as you know all, you know effective dispute resolution between these um two countries or anyone else who wants to, um, you know, settle their disputes there. An interesting thing, so if you are going to bring your arbitration here to include it into your contract, the arbitration clause would be that all dispute arising out of or in connection with the present arbitration agreement shall be finally settled by the rules of arbitration of the Jerusalem Arbitration Center by one or more arbitrators appointed in accordance with the rules, and the seat will be Paris, France and the mm. parties expressly waive all rights of recourse to the French courts, which means that they waive their right to set aside the award or to bring a challenge to the award. Oh, I see. An exclusion agreement. Exactly. Um, and so I thought that was like the first interesting point. But before we even get into um, its connection with the ICC, because you'll see a lot of ICC elements in the rules. Um, the biggest problem that you face in such a you know political uh, hotbed environment is neutrality. Uh, so what they've done is they've had uh, they've created a court. Um, so it's the Jack Court, and that is composed of nine arbitration experts, two court members that are appointed by each of ICC Israel and ICC Palestine to get an equal representation from both sides, and then three international court members. Now, if we look to the appointing or it's called appointing or confirming an arbitrator is Article 10 of the rules. And what the parties do is when they submit, for example, the claimant, when they submit the request for arbitration and they nominate, they don't appoint, they nominate a um arbitrator for their party appointed arbitrator which has to be confirmed by this court that i just set out um, and the reason being is that basically they need, they need to make sure that the person has the requisite expertise of course but that they also need to make sure that there's um a clear sense of impartiality and independence i see so the court does not adjudicate disputes it approves nominated arbitrators exactly. who then hear the case it's like the board and the icc uh, yeah the, SEC, the court excuse me court at the ICC. Exactly. 
Um, and then another interesting thing with the neutrality is that um, it says, and unless the all parties agree, a sole arbitrator will not be appointed from Israel, West Bank, or the Gaza Strip. And that's just to make it clear that there is no uh, bias between the parties. It's interesting. It is interesting. And so then if we look at some highlights, just some features in the rules, um, in Article 7, you, you have the con consolidation, a tribunal may consolidate um, cases brought. Um, and then you have in Article 20, the term of reference, which is, you know, very similar to the ICC rules. Um, and then they have, they include a lot of rules that are usually included in a PO1, um, like the admission of evidence, uh, the means of communication between the parties, setting up a pre-hearing telephone conference. So they, they actually have rules that are um, written out. Uh, oh, so it's in the rules, all these procedural nitty-gritty. Most of them. Obviously, there's other ones to be dealt with, but most of them that usually aren't in other rules. Um, and I wonder w if that has to do with the fact that you're um, they anticipate the parties not, you know, being extremely collegiate or why, mm. what they're... That's exactly what I was thinking as well. I wasn't sure if that was a, an acceptable thing to assume, but now that you've done it, let's let's address it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I was thinking that seems like an effort to minimize disputes within the dispute, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, that's I, what, when I read it, it's the first thing that came to my mind. But it, you're right, it, we could just be bringing... Um, our personal biases to this um, and then, that's also very likely always very likely always very likely but we need at least we recognize it uh, article 25 has a provisional uh, provision on interim measures which is interesting uh, and then article 27 says the award shall be deemed to be made at the seat of arbitration and on the date stated therein do you think that that means that the award will be like we talked about before that the award would be a french award in that yes sense? okay i think that's the only reasonable way to to read that provision gotcha and that also makes sense given that it's a, an icc effort right exactly and speaking of icc they have a provision on scrutiny so you really have some icc elements in there and is that something that this court of 15 people does as well yes Okay, so yeah, it's very, it's a mini ICC yeah. in Jerusalem. And they also have a secretariat. They have an international secretary general, and then they have deputy secretary generals, one from Israel and one from Palestine. Um, but, but, sorry to rain on your parade, but do they have cases? That is the rain on this entire parade. Uh, <laughs> as far as I know, which um, could have changed recently, I do not think that they have had very many if at all because i co-edited a book called arbitrating for peace in which i now i can't recall exactly 14 or 15 different authors each wrote about uh, a, a, an arbitration an interstate an investor state or a commercial arbitration from the history of arbitration in which arbitration served a purpose towards peace or you know making geopolitical issues better and we were actually either we were approached by the Jerusalem Center or we brought it up ourselves. But we, we discussed it, actually, I remember without saying too much. I think this was one of the things we talked about. Should we have a chapter on this? Because this really sounds and even more so now that you've pitched it like the, the core and you know, arbitrating for peace effort. But as I recall, I think we're partly because it was in the future 
and all the other chapters were uh, backwards looking to historic cases, it wouldn't fit the profile. And also, as I recall, the fact that they didn't have any cases at that point, this was a few years ago, uh, didn't really, I mean, that was, I think, a, a deciding factor in, in us not keeping it in the book, because even though the effort is amazing, unfortunately, at that point in time, at least, there were no cases at the center. Right. It, it just becomes a theoretical discussion until something is actually tried. It's, yes. it's hard because when you bring up a, a, this type of arbitration for peace or any sort of peace movement, there's a lot of skepticism on the new, the effective neutrality of the entire system and whether it is, I mean, these people are dealing with their money and their livelihoods to kind of be the guinea pig in this type of arbitration. Um, I don't know who's going to take the first dive, but I, I mean, I hope someone does because yes, yeah. it, it really... could be a great a great effort uh, it sounds like a very good idea too good not to be used in practice and this is why we leave it in the happy fun time instead of a substantive discussion but yes something to think about <laughs> and you know the sec just per had that video about arbitration arbitrating for peace um and that big highlight was that trade is what solves a lot of political problems when you're when you're making money and putting money in your pockets you tend to ignore the hate a little bit yeah, this is the logic behind the European Union as well. Right. So that's it. That's it. But let me also, on, a, on an unrelated topic, now that we managed to be so politically correct here without hopefully offending anyone for the last 15 minutes, yes. let me address something that so many people approach me about. Why do we blank out swear words in this podcast? Because we have careers to think about. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, we don't really do a good job blanking them out, but... No, we don't. But it's it's important to at least point out that we we uh, don't say fuck. We don't say shit. Or I mean, we say it, but you won't hear we it. Just did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sorry, catch twenty two. But uh, it's it's not because we're prude. It's because partly because we don't want to offend people unnecessarily, and partly, frankly, it's because uh, some of the podcast outlets that we use uh, have you. Uh, assign uh, if whether or not the the episode in question is explicit and that has a number of implications and we just simply don't want to be explicit unnecessarily so we want to avoid ticking that box uh, consistently that might change if enough people contact us and say it's more fun when we actually swear on air and use curse words and other uh, inappropriate language right which, I mean, it's at this point, it's been unnecessary. Sometimes when, you know, we get a little heated or maybe we get a little debate, sure, I'll throw it out there for you. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're still fledgling podcasts. We need to, you know, build up some listenership and then maybe we'll take our liberties. Uh, but follow us on the ARB station or tweet at us at the ARB station. Follow us uh, and go on arbitrationstation.com to find all past episodes. Also follow us on iTunes and don't forget to subscribe and also SoundCloud for those of you who don't have an iPhone or an iPhone X. <laughs> he said angrily. Uh, yeah, exactly. Get with the program. All right. Thanks all for right. listening. Thank you. Thank you.